I would like to open with a quote from a great man of God. I love my Turks. <laughs> I do. I, I love my church. I love my pastors. I love my brothers and sisters in Christ here. I just love my church. Uh, so yesterday, went to lunch, Pastor Matt, Pastor Eric, and uh, shared a, a verse, a verse, one, one verse, that somewhat spoke to me. Wasn't even sure what it was, what the Lord was trying to say. And now I'm up here. <laughs> so I love my church. <laughs> I love being around men and women of God who are gonna stretch you, you know, who are gonna sharpen you, grow you, make you make you do things you thought you never could do. <laughs> So, I'm going to open here with the, uh, the verse that I shared with the pastors. Amen. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 3. Yes. We're going to start in verse 9. This is the birth of the message. And do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones... God can raise up children for Abraham. So the thought, the, this, what the, the Spirit kept on placing on my heart was God's ultimate plan of redemption will be accomplished. The renewal of all things will be accomplished, and He will use His children to accomplish it. Amen. So let's go to Genesis 18. Genesis 18, starting in verse 19. Verse 18. There. It says, Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Yes. It is God's desire for all men to be saved. He tells Abraham here that all nations will be blessed through him. And the reality is, even before the creation of our universe, God has set in motion a plan to accomplish this end to accomplish His will. But the question, the great mystery for me and for you today is who will be revealed as a child of God? To what end will we partake in God's ultimate plan of redemption? Turn with to John chapter 4. Starting in verse 34. Here's Jesus describing him doing his work. He says, My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. 
Jesus could always say, my food, my sustenance, the thing that I live for is to do the will of my Father. And that's convicting for me. You know, one of the hardest things for me about preaching is I have to ask myself, would I be studying this hard? Would I be studying this zealously? Uh, would I be concerned about all the church meetings that we have if it some way didn't affect me? If they weren't part of the LCMF, if they weren't part of my family, if I wasn't preaching, would I, would I be concerned if it somehow didn't affect me and my plans? Or am I excited and thrilled to see when God's will is being fulfilled? The next verse here, in verse 35, it says, Do you not say four months more and then the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now, the reaper draws wages. Even now, he harvests the crop of eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. If I'm the sower, do I rejoice when the reaper harvests the crop? I'm only concerned about my plans, what I want to do. Even if if it's what I think God wants me to do, am I concerned about what God told my brother to do? I think one of the foundational rocks in this church, Pastor Eric describes, Jesus tells him, you know, I know that you're willing to die for the vision that I've given you. But are you willing to die for the vision for the brother? Amen. The Lord is showing me that that's why how much a man prays will tell you a lot more about a man than how much he can preach. Because you can preach for a lot of reasons. You can do so-called ministry for the, work, for, for the Lord for a lot of reasons, but they're not necessarily pure and from the Lord. But to pray in secret, in that special place where it's just you and the Father, that's how you hear and you accomplish his will. That's how you eat that pure food from the Lord's table. That's how you feast upon his very presence. Prayer, Lord, just make me like Christ. I don't care if you have to dethrone me. I don't care if you have to tear apart my business. I don't care if you have to destroy me. I don't care what happens, just make me like Christ. And that's a common prayer. So often, I don't think that we realize when we're praying that, we're actually calling a death sentence upon ourselves. But then again, John chapter 4, 24 says, Unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a seed. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. We want to bear the fruit. 
but we don't want to die. We'd like to bear the fruit in our own effort. The prophecies that came forth tonight. We don't want to rely on the strong arm of the Lord to reach down and lift us up and help us bear this fruit. We want to bear the fruit with the strength of our own arm. Now, it's a very great sin to take matters into your own hands. But that's what we've been taught in our culture. The man needs a car. He doesn't have any money. He goes to the bank, gets a loan, he buys the car. He takes the initiative. He goes on his own strength and his own will. He gets the job done, but then he's a slave to it. Proverbs 22.7 tells us that the borrower is slave to the lender. We often become slaves to our own desire and to our own plan for our lives. And that trap can be just as easily fallen into regarding ministry. Say, Father, I want to do this thing in the name of Jesus and in the ministry of the Father, but I will initiate nothing. Amen. Father, by your Spirit, show me Guide me, lead me. Absolute surrender to Him. Absolute surrender. And you know, there, there's so much talk about God and Jesus, uh, Him being man in the flesh or flesh in the man, and yet. Jesus was God in the flesh, but he was also a man totally submitted to God. When we pray, make me like Jesus Christ, that's what we're praying. A man totally submitted to God. That's what we're called to. There ought to be a way when somebody asks us a question as to why we're doing something, the answer is, I believe it to be God's will. Amen. James 4.13. Let's go there. It says, now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money, why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are mist, a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, I will do this or that. Amen. But as it is, you boast of your arrogant schemes. And all such boasting is evil. If all the doors of creation fly open but God says stop, then you bring glory to God by stopping. And you save yourself from a lot of despair. Now this is by no means an intention, intention just to sit on the sideline and do nothing. 
but our intentions must be pure. Amen. We must be led by His Spirit. Led by His... Led by His Spirit. That's what we need to be led by. <laughs> If we're not led by a spirit, then we can very easily find ourselves actually fighting against the very will of God. We must be filled by his spirit in order to be transformed and to be like Jesus. So tonight, one thing I'd really like us to focus in on is realize that Jesus Christ is more He's worth more than just your casual acceptance. He is worth absolute surrender. You know what? It takes a lot more than just a head knowledge to participate in the ministry of Jesus Christ and to see his kingdom fulfilled, to see his kingdom expanded here on earth. Honestly, it it takes a lot more than just being part of a sold-out, spirit-filled church, too. It takes more than just being around brothers and sisters who are sold out. You, individually, personally, must surrender your life to Jesus Christ. I'm going to show you an example. Go through an example. The, The... Lord was showing me in Scripture. Let's look, turn to Luke chapter 6. I'm going to start in verse 12. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray. And he spent the night praying to God. When morning came... He called his disciples to him, and he chose 12 of them, whom he designated apostles. Simon, who was named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who is called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. So now here we see Jesus choosing his 12. And so often we see a list of names and we'll just read right through it and and, and not give it much time or contemplation, but the choosing of these 12 men is a key moment in human history. There's a reason Jesus spent a whole night before praying. He needed to hear from the Father. He wasn't going to do anything until he heard from the Father about this monumental decision that we just read about. These 12, or these 11, would change the world as we now know it. Let's put ourselves in the shoes here. I mean, can you imagine how pumped these 12 must be right now? They were singled out out of all the other disciples. And they were designated as apostles. At this point, I think most of them all had the same thought in mind. All of them were hopeful that Jesus was the Messiah. 
but at this point, all of them had no idea what that actually meant. And none of them thought that they would be a traitor. We're looking back at the story. But at this time, no one save Jesus knew that there was going to be a traitor amongst their mix. They were all expecting the Messiah to come and rule and reign and overthrow this Roman Empire that were suppressing them. They were expecting a political reign here on earth. And now they have been chosen by the Messiah to be the apostles. And in their mind, they're thinking, we're going to get to reign in this new kingdom. They had an idea of what it was going to be like to follow the Messiah. All of them. All the way from Peter down to Judas had different plans than what Jesus had for them. I think that's similar for a lot of our lives. We take the Jesus of the Bible, we try to make him fit into our preferences and our preconceived notions. Come on, Jesus knows what we're thinking. He knew what the 12 apostles were thinking. And it only takes a couple of seconds, a couple of verses after selecting his apostles to look at them. And he starts training them and giving them a true perspective of what it actually means to follow the Messiah, what it was going to be like to follow him. In Luke 6, verse 20, he says, looking at his disciples, he said, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you who will, people will hate you when they exclude you and they insult you and they reject you and they reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven. You see, Jesus does promise them something amazing. But he also lets them know what they're going to have to get, go through in order to receive it. It's the same test that Jesus himself went through in the wilderness. Jesus was promised the earth. He was promised the nations. But Jesus, Satan was trying to sell him on receiving it without having to go through the cross. Jesus is promising his followers some amazing blessings. But he's also letting them know they're going to have to pick up their cross and follow him. Throughout Jesus' time with the disciples, he's constantly retraining them, refocusing them, getting rid of these preconceived notions of what it was like to follow Jesus. Listen, guys, he's saying, my kingdom plans, my plan, my Father's plan is so much different than what you guys think it is. But the disciples were not fully listening. And we often... Don't listen. We take scriptures like pick up your cross and follow me. 
and we try to make it fit into our own life. We say things like, well, what Jesus really meant, and we fill in the blank so that we can get a Jesus that we're a little more comfortable with. A Jesus that fits our lifestyle a little better. A Jesus who is okay with a nominal or half-hearted, lukewarm devotion. A Jesus who would not call us to dangerous extremes. Or for that matter, a Jesus who wants us to avoid danger altogether. But here's the real danger. We are taking the Jesus of the Bible and we're twisting him into our own image so he looks like us. He thinks like us. He'll align with our, with, align with us. When we gather together in churches and our worship services and we sing songs and we lift up our hands, but in reality, we are not worshiping the Jesus of the Bible. We are singing and worshiping ourselves. And we think we're worshiping Jesus. Jesus plainly tells his disciples, I'm going to die. As the ministry of Jesus unfolds, he blatantly tells them what must happen to the Son of Man. Turn with me to Mark chapter 10. Starting in verse 32. Let me get there. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished, while those who followed him were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside, and he told them what was going to happen to him. We are going to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death, and he will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Jesus is telling his disciples about the most important event in the human history, and they're still not getting it. They are still seeing Jesus as a Messiah who will establish a political kingdom on earth. Right after this, the mother of James and John comes to Jesus and asks, Please have my sons be able to sit on your right and your left. They saw him as the lion of Judah who will rule and reign on earth. Amen, he will. But they're missing a crucial step in the salvation plan of the human race. But something much worse than just asking Jesus if I can sit on your right happens next. One of the disciples is so hell-bent on seeing this play out the way he intended that he takes matters into his own hands. Go to Mark chapter 14. Starting in verse 3. 
He says, while he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present saying indignantly to, those another, to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, Jesus said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. I tell you the truth, wherever the gospel is preached, throughout the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Here's where the tragedy takes place. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. Here, I see Judas trying to take manners into his own hands. Trying to force the hand of Jesus. Despite spending the past three and a half years with Jesus, despite seeing all the miracles, despite sitting at the feet of Jesus and having the mysteries of the kingdom revealed to him, he was unwilling to let go of his own plan he was unwilling to surrender to the plans of Jesus. Judas is still holding on to that same mindset that he had when Jesus first called him to be an apostle. He wants Jesus to establish his kingdom here on earth so that Judah's will can be done and he can reign. And the result of that mindset, the result of that lack of surrender, is one of the most tragic things that can happen to a man or woman. It's one of the most tragic things that can happen to you or I. You know, I think one problem is that Judas did not have an accurate picture of who the Messiah was an accurate picture of who Jesus really is. And the same thing can happen to us today. Because of that blurred picture, we just test the waters to see if Jesus is really worth it. We test the waters to see if Jesus is worthy of us. Spend some time here so we can see who the real Jesus is. Let's see who the real Jesus is that we're singing to and that we're worshiping and that we're claiming to follow. He is the Savior who is worthy of your trust. Amen. You think the cross that you have to bear is hard. But after Judas declares decide to take manner into his own hands. 
Scripture says that the time approached for Jesus to be taken up to heaven, and he resolutely set out for Jerusalem. The road that he is heading to is going towards Jerusalem. We all know what's waiting for him there. The cross is waiting for him in Jerusalem. And he sets out. He goes to the cross, and the cross is not an accident along the way. It's not plan B. The cross was plan A. The cross was the only plan. Jesus resolutely set out to die. This is the apex of the gospel. John 10, 18 says, No one takes my life from me. I have authority to lay it down and pick it back up again. We need to want to make sure we're reminded here that we are not saved from our sins in this room because of what a bunch of Roman soldiers decided they wanted to do to Jesus. When you see Jesus in the in the garden and he's cowering and he's he's sweating blood, why is he sweating blood? Is it because he's afraid of what some Roman soldiers are about to do to him? No. Think about it. There have been countless people since that day who have died in the name of Jesus, who have died for the cause of Christ, who will be listed as a martyr for eternity, who have gone to their crosses singing. One Indian man was being skinned alive, and he said to his tormentors, You may take off my outer garment. Today I will put on a new garment of righteousness. Another man was heading to the gallows and he writes a note to his wife that says, Today they will sever my head from my, my physical head. They will sever my body from my physical head, but they will never sever my spiritual head, Christ. Amen. And he goes to the gallows singing and his wife is applauding. Yeah. Were these men more brave than Christ? In the garden, Jesus is not cowering about to face some Roman soldiers. He is a Savior who is about to endure divine wrath. His prayer, Father, if it is possible, let this cup be taken from me. What is this cup? Jeremiah 25, 15 says, Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath. Holy wrath, do sin. Revelation 14, 19, the great winepress of God's wrath encompassed in this cup. Holy wrath, do your sin. Do my sin. Holy wrath, do sinners, was about to be poured out on his son, and Jesus chose to endure it for you and for me. There's an example I heard. It doesn't even do it justice. But it's like you're standing in front of a dam that's 10,000 miles high and 10,000 miles wide, filled with the water to, br- to the brim. And in an instant, the dam is let loose and all these millions of gallons of waters are come rushing at you in a torrent. And right before that water is about to devour you and to devour me, the ground in front of us 
opens up and swallows every last drop. So at the cross, in a much greater way, Jesus took the cup of the wrath of God. Do your sin. That was do my sin. He took it. He drank down every last drop, and he turned that cup over, and he cried, It is finished. Do not stand back and test the waters to see if God is worthy of you. Amen. He has purchased you with his blood. Why in the world are we hesitating? God has already laid out the stakes. It's either him or it's destruction. Everything that we do that is not in complete surrender to him is absolutely empty. A few more verses and we'll get ready to close. I want us to see the ultimate contrast between unwilling to give up our plans versus surrendering to the plans of Jesus. Turn with me to Acts chapter 1. Starting in verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120. And he said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of David concerning Judas who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number, and he shared in this ministry. With the reward he got for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong. His body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language Alcadema, that is, field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted. Let there be no one to dwell in it. And may another take his place of leadership. Going your own way only leads to death. Now let's see what Jesus had in store for Judas if he was only willing to let go and surrender to Jesus. Revelation chapter 21, starting in verse 1. It says, Then I say, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first earth and the first heaven had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. 
There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And it says in verse 14, the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And there was nothing special about those 12 scared Jewish boys. There was nothing special about Judas. Some chose to abandon his plans and follow Jesus, and one didn't. God's ultimate plan of redemption will be accomplished. The renewal of all things will be accomplished and he will use his children to accomplish it. But if you choose to go your own path, I tell you the truth, out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. Amen. I'd like to close in Matthew chapter 19. I'd like for us to have allow the Holy Spirit to examine us, search us. Are there plans that you have, ideas that you have, ideas the way you think things should be, areas that you are unwilling to surrender to Jesus? Because if there are, our mighty Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, can break down every stronghold in your life. What God has in store for you is so much greater than the plans that you have for your life. Yes, it'll be hard. Yes, it will hurt at times. Yes, you will have to give up your very life. But what it produces is something beautiful. We're going to close here. Matthew 19, starting in verse 28. Jesus made some incredible, incredible promises to his disciples. He makes some incredible promises to us that will follow the footsteps of those disciples and surrender everything to Jesus. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. A very serious word from a very serious Christian.
as Americans, we can get used to hearing familiar terms. If any man must, if any man would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. You hear it enough to where somehow or another it's lost its sting. Maybe as we worship and sing of God's holiness tonight, we could ask him to give us baby skin again, that we would be sensitive to exactly what he said when he says it. I want to tell you about the very first altar call in the Bible. It was not with every head bowed and every eye closed. Find the courage of a miserable worm and raise a pinky. Listen to how Joshua, who had encountered God and encountered men of God, said this. And forget the plaque on your grandmother's wall for a minute. Because it's not half of the story. And it distorts it when you finish it in your mind before you've heard the whole thing. Joshua 24, 14 says this, Now fear Yahweh and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your forefathers worship beyond the river and in Egypt and serve Yahweh. If serving Yahweh seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve whether the gods of your forefather that they served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're living. But as for me and my household, we will serve Yahweh. Then the people answered, far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. It's kind of ignoring the fact that they had other gods among them right then, isn't it? It was the Lord, our God himself, who brought us and our fathers up out of Egypt from the land of slavery and performed those great signs before our eyes. He protected us on our entire journey and among all the nations through which we traveled. And the Lord drove out before us all the nations, including the Amorites who lived in the land. We too will serve Yahweh because he is our God. Joshua said to the people, by the way, his people, you are not able to serve Yahweh. He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. If you forsake Yahweh and serve foreign gods, he will turn and bring disaster on you and make an end of you after he has been good to you. Ask Judas about that. But the people said to Joshua, no, we will serve Yahweh. Then Joshua said, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have cho chosen to serve Yahweh. Yes, we are witnesses, they replied. Now then, said Joshua, throw away the foreign gods that are among you and yield your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, we will serve Yahweh our God. And what's that last phrase? Amen. You cannot serve the Lord without obeying him.
It is not possible to have salvation without lordship. It doesn't matter what you've been taught. The brother brought a fine word tonight. Ironically, the vision statement of this church is that God would draw the precious stones, the rare metals from the earth. That he would bring them to us and we would polish them for his service. And then he would do with them as he chose. We wrote that in 2002 and now he's drawn you in here in 2015. You be the stone that he raises up. You be polished through every sacrificial act of obedience. And today, choose whether or not you'll really serve the Lord. And I'm not ashamed to say, if you only want to go halfway with him, you are not worthy of him, and you are not worthy to sit in here, and you should leave. But if your heart is burning, yes, yes, I will serve the Lord. He will make you able to serve him. He will put his spirit in you so that you can serve him. It's not a question of competency. It's a question of surrender. When we stand to our feet, we're going to waste no time. Tonight, this is the official close of our service.